So church, we have this one Sunday coming off of, of two weeks of guest preachers, and next week is the start of Lent, and I've been trying to think about what could we do in one Sunday that is going to be useful to us and, and to the kingdom. And then I started thinking about conversations that I've been having recently, especially when I went up to Charlotte and, and was speaking to the church, churches up in Charlotte. It is always amazing to me how many assumptions we make about one another. And, and I'm sure this has happened to you, but the way that it happens to me is, oh, your, your last name is Lee, you must be da 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 And they're always expecting me to be Asian. Um, or you... Oh, you're, you're from Sarasota, Bradenton. I, you guys must definitely fill in the blank. You don't want to know what they fill in the blank with. Um, or, or, and this happens, this happens here in Bradenton, so your daughter goes to Southeast, you must fill in the blank, and it's also never good. So I think that what happens is that a lot of times we see one characteristic of someone, uh, whether it's their heritage or... Um, what neighborhood they live in or where they went to school, and you start making all kinds of assumptions that, that may or may not be correct. And we do that about our brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Oh, you're an evangelical, you must. Da, 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 da. You're a Catholic, you must. Da, 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 da. And, and we do that, and then, then we like to divide ourselves and, and put ourselves into different camps. And then it gets really hard to start having conversations with one another because we've made so many assumptions about each other. And so I'd like to, I'd like to talk a little bit about where our unity is as believers and, and how we can go into this very divided political season and in a very divided country to seek that unity together. So if you'll pray with me, we'll study the word. Gracious God, we thank you for this good opportunity, and we pray that we would really, truly, honestly do something good with it. In your name, amen. So when I was in seminary, I was a youth director in a congregation that had called themselves a pastor from Scotland. His daughter was 15, and she was just learning to drive, and, and being from Scotland, they went with the same driving method that they have over there, which is to stick an enormous L sign in the front and the back of the car, bright red L, to let everyone around his daughter know that she was learning to drive and they should get off the road as quickly as humanly possible. <clears throat> and I remember his daughter came to me and she said, Dad, Dad is ridiculous. Can I learn in your car. And, um, and I said, yes, but we didn't put the L's in, and I wish that we had. I, I wish that we had. I wish that we had notified everyone that she was a driver. And, and now, as a parent who has a new driver, I think about this a lot, and I think we Americans need to embrace the huge L sign in the front and the back of the car so, so that people are aware of what is going on around them, and why is this person taking 45 minutes just to move over one lane? Why is that happening? If we had the L sign, then people would know, and maybe, just maybe, they would respond with more grace and compassion. So there's times when seeing a label on someone is helpful, such as when they're learning to drive. 
There are other times when it can be detrimental and harmful, not just to the person, but to the whole community. So I want us to take a minute, and I just want you to think about some images that come to your mind when I say the following words. These could be good images. These could be bad images. These are your images. You own them. We're not going to share them. Think about what comes to your mind when I say the word Harlem. ADHD. Socialism. Transgender. Beverly Hills. Geriatric. Fundamentalist. Now I want you to think about how these words might change your perception of someone or what kind of things you might assume about them. If they came with a warning label that said, I'm from Harlem or I have ADHD, how would that change how you see that person, how you treat them, how you interact with them? 1996 was the first election where I could vote for the President of the United States. You can do the math on that later. <laughs> it was also a time before social media and back when email was just really starting to get its groove. It was also the year that after 18 years of growing up together and going to school together and being out on the weekends together, my graduating class scattered across the country and we couldn't see each other face to face anymore. So in September of that year, I was a freshman at college and I had gotten involved in a political campaign that I was very passionate about. Even back then, I was what, what they now call an education voter. So my interests are heavily vested in public education for all kids. So one day, I had this brilliant idea. It was so brilliant to send out an email to all of my high school friends whom I had known forever, reminding them how important it was to vote in the upcoming election and that if they cared about education at all, they would definitely vote for my candidate. So I wrote out what I thought was this incredibly articulate and persuasive email that very honestly, I didn't think needed to be all that persuasive because in my mind, it was so abundantly clear and my friends were obviously going to agree with me and I just promptly hit that send button to 20 or 30 of my closest high school friends. To this day, my best friend refers to that as the moment that I set off an atomic bomb in our friend group because within 15 minutes, the replies started pouring in, and it was war. Within an hour, all of these people who I had known for years were saying things to and about each other that I would never imagine that they would say. Friendships fractured, relationships destroyed, feelings hurt, and there I was at ground zero, having completely divided a group of people who four months earlier we're all walking across the stage together. Now, how did that happen? Because we all grew up in the same town. We all played softball and lacrosse together. We went to the same high school. We had the same teachers. And yet, 
somehow at the end of all of that, we saw the world very differently. It took years, years to get that damage reconciled. Years that are now lost to eternity over something that at the end of the day, no matter how passionate I was about it, was not eternal. It was not eternal. And that's the issue that Paul is concerned about this morning as he writes to the people of Corinth. He says, now I appeal to you brothers and sisters. And I love the fact that Paul always uses brothers and sisters because what he's saying is that if you are a believer in Christ, you are part of a family. We belong to each other. Think about that. Think about the fact that we belong to one another. And he says that all of you should be in agreement and there should be no divisions among you, but that you should be united in the same mind and same purpose. Well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that? I love the Baltimore Orioles and the rest of you are wrong. So we are not, we are not in the same mind and agreement. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is simply talking about our relationship to Christ and what that means for us as believers. So what is it that brings all of the people that Paul's writing together in the first place? Remember, this is not an open letter to everybody. This is a letter to the people in Corinth who have identified themselves as believers and followers in Christ. So that's what he's trying to get them to, to notice. What is it that connects you all together? And it's this common belief that Christ died for the sins of the world. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead and he reigns in glory at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So the common denominator is this belief that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and that matters. Therefore, the purpose of the church is to follow Christ and to make him known throughout the world. We make him known by following the Great Commission from Jesus himself. Jesus' words in Matthew, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. So the mind and the purpose are the essentials. These are the non-negotiables. Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We are to know him, follow him, and make him known. It's just that simple and just that hard. Because as Paul writes, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people, Chloe, your people, they have reported, tattletales, that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. Don't forget we're family. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. And Paul asks, has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then he goes on, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you can claim you were baptized by me. However, I did baptize Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. And he says this, he says, because Christ did not send me to baptize, but to proclaim the gospel. That's, that's what Jesus asked us to do. He asked us to go and proclaim the gospel. And we don't have to do it with eloquent wisdom because the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. That's such an interesting thing to fight about, isn't it? If we are to say that we follow Jesus 
and we belong to Jesus alone, how could we belong to someone or something else? I, I suppose that if you wanted to, you could say, well, I belong to Jesus, but I was baptized by Pastor Hope. Who cares? Who cares? Why, why does it matter who you were baptized by. I may be a pastor, but I am still a sinner, and I want to be clear with you about this. It is never going to be me who saves you, who redeems you, who gives you eternal life. I love baptizing the children and adults of this church, but they do not belong to me. In fact, if you were to go back in church history, there was a time when they had a very lengthy discussion about the validity of baptisms that were performed by people who later fell from grace. And it was determined by the church council that baptisms were still valid because we are baptized into Christ, who is still perfect and unfailing. So who you were baptized by is irrelevant. Who you were baptized into is eternal. And that's why Paul is honing in on being of one mind on eternal issues, which, if we are brutally honest about, are extremely small in number. Paul's not known for being a particularly funny guy, but you got to love what he does here. He's so disgusted with this whole conversation. He says, I'm so glad I didn't baptize any of you, except for Crispus and Gaius. And then he comes back later on. He's like, oh yeah, and, this, and the household of Stephanus. I baptize them, but none of the rest of you. I am not responsible for this ridiculous fight that you are having. And, and it reminds me so much of when my kids are misbehaving and I will say to Sung, would you do something with your kids? Right? Because, because I don't want to get involved in that ridiculousness. And that's what Paul's saying. He's like, do you even hear yourselves? Do you hear the stuff that you're fighting about, that you're dividing yourselves over? Is this worth it to you? And he wants nothing to do with this because he understands that, that at the end of the day, it's not about this baptism business. It's about proclaiming the gospel. And there's a difference, and that difference is very important. Baptism alone does not save anyone. And I know that's hard for us to hear culturally because a lot of us grew up in situations where it was very important to get baptized right away, right away, it has to happen. But there's nowhere in scripture that says that your baptism is what's going to save you. There are a lot of people who've been baptized who do not know Jesus Christ, who do not believe in him as their Lord and Savior. Their baptism will not save them. But... The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, which is why Paul goes on to further say that he doesn't need to dress it up or to make it entertaining because it is plenty powerful all on its own. So if the gospel is what's important, why is it that we divide ourselves on other stuff? We're getting really good as a country at dividing ourselves. I think it's because the gospel's hard. It's really hard. The word of God is non-negotiable. Whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, it is the word of God. So it's so much easier then for us to fight about the non-essentials and to divide ourselves up over these non-essentials. Where in scripture 
does it say that your salvation hinges upon who baptized you? Where can you find that in Scripture? Or where can you find in Scripture that your salvation, your home in the kingdom of God is dependent upon which denomination you belong to? Or whether or not you have a male or a female pastor, or whether or not you go to a contemporary or a traditional service. Where in Scripture does it say those things? But those are the things that the church fights about. The larger church, I'm not talking about Kirkwood specifically, but the larger church, we fight about those things. Why is that? Because they're so much easier to fight about than to actually go out and do the work of the gospel commission. There's 3,000 lost souls in our community, but really we need to spend our time fighting about the best way to serve communion. There's millions of people all over the globe who do not know the love of Jesus Christ, but really we should fight about who's going to do the baptism. Do we, do we hear ourselves, church, when we have those fights? When we're fighting with our neighbor who goes to a different church about whose church is better and why and who has better access to God because of the songs that they sing? Do we hear ourselves? So when Paul asks the question, has Christ been divided, that's not the same question as, is Christ divided? We need to be clear about this. Jesus Christ is absolutely not divided. When he went to the cross, he did it for the tax collector and for the widow who was down to her last coins. He did it for Peter and Paul as well as the centurion and the thief. He gave up his life for men and women and called them to follow him. He paid the ultimate price for children, for the elderly, for the married, the divorced, the single. Jesus Christ is not divided about who he loves and how much he loves us. But Paul asks, has Christ been divided? And if your answer to that is yes, that's because of us, not because of him. We divide Christ the moment that we decide that we are better than someone else, that we have a more exclusive understanding of God than someone else. We divide Christ when we claim that we are far superior in our faith than our brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God, especially when they happen to disagree with us. We divide, we divide Christ when we exclude people from the grace of God because their interpretation of Scripture is so vastly different than our interpretation, and it's over something that is a non-essential and will not matter when we get to glory. I've been writing in the Bradenton Herald now for five years, and every time an article comes out, I always get some level of response. But I have never gotten the level of response that came after I wrote about my friendship with a Catholic priest here in Sarasota. Now, if you have never been a Catholic, never known a Catholic, never heard of the Catholic Church, the Cliff Notes version of this is that Catholics and Presbyterians see some things very, very differently. And one of the most obvious of those things is that if this was a Catholic church, I wouldn't be the one standing in front of you right now. So there are some things that we have different opinions on. And some of these things have caused very deep divisions throughout history. And so the church divides itself. And everybody takes their little part of Jesus with them, convinced that their part is the 
best part. We need to be so very careful with that because it's simply not in Scripture that Jesus was a Catholic or a Presbyterian or a Lutheran or a Pentecostal. Jesus is Lord. That's what's in Scripture, period. And by virtue of being the Lord, he's the one in charge. He's the one in charge over everybody, regardless of where they sit on a Sunday morning or any other morning or night for that matter. But when all of us who, who claim to believe that, who claim to believe that he is the Lord and that he's in charge, when we start fighting about the other stuff, what is weakened in that moment is our witness to the world. Because here's what happens. The non-believing world takes a good look at us and they say, some God they have, they don't even like each other. They don't even like each other so much that they'll spend all of their time fighting it out. Well, while they do that, we'll just be over here. We'll be feeding the hungry and healing the sick and visiting the prisoner. And so then the question becomes, who's living the gospel now? So what do we do with that, church? What does our little congregation need to be doing so that we can make a difference in a culture that is just hell-bent on dividing Christ for their purposes? Well, I think the first thing that we need to do, and this is, this is a heart issue, it is a spiritual issue, it is an issue that you can take Lent and consider and pray about, and I want to encourage you to do that. We can actually live our lives as though we really do believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And I know that that sounds like an easy thing, but it is not. It is not. Do we live every day as though Jesus Christ is Lord of all? We can agree to disagree about baseball, politics, the weather, whatever we want, but we will be united in our belief that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, not just the people that we agree with. And so we can take all of that energy, all of that effort, all of that time that we might have spent fighting about non-essentials, and we can pour ourselves into what Christ asked us to do, what Christ told us to do. Love him. Love our neighbor. Welcome children. Care for the widow. Feed the hungry. Share the word. If we actually spent our time doing the things that Jesus told us to do, we wouldn't have a single moment left over to fight about things that are not going to matter one iota when we get to glory. Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we confess that, um, that sometimes when we don't want to do the hard work, we'll just go pick fights to distract ourselves Fights that, that are non-essential, that are not going to matter when we walk into your kingdom. And we do that so that we can feel justified about not doing the hard work of the gospel. Not going out there to, to teach your word. To help others grow in following you. To be evangelists in our own community. Those things are hard, Lord, and it's so much easier to just pick a fight about who baptized who. Lord, help us to be a congregation that's willing to boldly go and do the hard work. In your name we pray.